Hey everyone, welcome to the Trail Life Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Stoner. Thank you for joining me on yet another journey across the podcast airways. Truly appreciate it. Uh, you know, I got a good one for you today. I have a chance to typically get introduced to or meet new trail runners because of this podcast. And and this is what this conversation is all about today. It's a it's a it's a it's a new uh, fresh face to me, but somebody who's been in the ultra category for many, many years. And I don't want to date him by, by any means, but uh, he pretty much started trail ultra running back when ultras were brand new, back in 1994 and that 1996 time frame. So he's been around, he's seen a lot. Uh, so I'm really excited to hear his stories uh, throughout the years. He brings a really cool insight uh, on not only those races, but his triple crown and his technically his triple, triple crown. Uh, it, a lot of stories to share, so let's just get right into it. Welcome to The Trail Life, Mr. Phil Lowry. Well, help me turn the turning. Well, help me get it right. I don't want to hurt nobody. Well, I don't want to fight. Tell you what, I I have an opportunity to talk to a lot of uh, runners on this show, and and I this is the way I get a chance to meet a lot of new community members, which is awesome. And you know, for for Ben to you know refer me to you and and kind of give a little bit of insight on your story uh, prior to us sitting down was it was really nice. So it's I always love being able to meet new people and hear new stories on on everybody. So it's I appreciate you joining me and 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 talking through through your your journey today. Oh yeah, no worries. Before we get into the trail running side of things, um, I, I, you know, I was you, you sent me your website and I was looking over that and I, I thought it was very interesting as you're labeled as an accidental cyber lawyer. <laughs> so I, kinda, <laughs> so I kind of want to get a little bit of background on that first and kind of let people hear that that conversation as far as how you got into being a cyber lawyer because uh, I just by reading it on your website it was very interesting. Yeah, well, it, I think a lot of us that practice in the area of cybersecurity, cyber law, and privacy law have kind of just ended up falling into it because of a weird situation. Yeah. Um, and for me, it was, um, you know probably back at the end of the 2000s, you know, the, about 2009 or 2010, I started working for the Air Force um, as a full-time civilian attorney, but I was also in the Utah National Guard and was assigned to a special forces unit. And so I, I was responsible for what's called intelligence oversight, that they're real active in the special forces with that. Um, and basically there's a really, really strict rule as to whether you can gather intelligence on what are called U.S. persons. So the bottom line is, it's trying to prevent the Snowden situation <clears throat> where okay. you're spying on American citizens. And that all comes from, you know, history back in the early 70s and stuff. Those laws are all in place. And so that's where it kind of got started. And then in my on the civilian side, since I, I'm in the National Guard, I have like basically two jobs, right? Okay. And on the civilian side, I started working this big Federal Trade Commission case that was we were retained by a private client who was being sued by the FTC and I had some tech knowledge and some interest. And so I ended up working on that case. And then the guard figured out, Oh, well, you're doing some stuff there. Will you help us with operation cyber shield? <laughs> and I said, sure. And so I started teaching at operation cyber shield and then kind of got to be known as, Oh, the guy who was willing to do that. 
and then became an expert <laughs> at some point. I don't know when that was. I became an expert, right? It happened at somewhere along the line that all of a sudden I became, you know, an expert. Sort of like what happened in my ultra running career. I just still sometimes look at myself as the the young apprentice guy who was following around some of the Wasatch, the old Wasatch Alpine striders <laughs> that are all gone now. That none yeah. of them are running anymore. Um, but still, kind of the the young runner and wondering you know, what do I eat when I go run 30 miles in the Uintas on our August trip that we would take there every year. And that doesn't happen anymore either. I mean, a lot of things have changed, right? This is from the early nineties. I ended up getting some certifications and now I'm kind of do a lot of cybersecurity and I actually have some knowledge in it, but do a lot of, I'm the cybersecurity attorney for my company and also do their privacy stuff. So it's, uh, it, it just kind of morphed. And a lot of folks, like I said, in the field are like that. And I feel like a lot of ultra runners are like that too. They, they just, they start running longer distances. And the next thing you know, it's like, Oh, I've done five or six hundreds. I guess I must be a veteran. Um, and I, people actually think I know what I'm doing, but every time I go out, when I go out on a, on a run, um, it's like a hold my beer moment. Um, on terms of a race. Right. Uh, And I've done 5,900s and 13, 200s. And I still feel like hold my beer. I have no idea what's going to (laughs) happen. Well, it's the, the cyber thing, it kind of goes hand in hand with the the trail running side of things. You never know what you're going to get when you, when you start getting into a a trail run or a trail race, it's kind of like, Hey, I, I felt great yesterday, but all of a sudden now I'm, <laughs> I'm, my knees hurt, yeah. my feet hurt, everything else. So it's, it's quite interesting that, that why is this happening? You know, like at exactly. uh, Moab 240, I started getting blisters on the balls of my feet. I haven't had that happen to me in a decade, yeah. you know, and all of a sudden I'm starting to get blisters on the balls of my feet. I'm like, what's going on? And it, it's just <laughs> there. It was hot. It was gritty. I, you know, Browning was saying the same thing to me, Bronco Billy saying, Oh yeah. You know, that, he had the same problem and never happens. And all of a sudden it happened and you just have to roll with it. You just yeah. don't know what you're going to get. It's like a box of chocolates. Right. Yep. So how did, uh, so how did, where did your trail running story start? Like, I mean, cause you're, you're now, if I'm correct if I'm wrong, you're around 55 mid fifties right yeah, now. Yeah. 56. Okay. I just Which, turned 56. So again, this goes to my point uh, that I've said before on this thing. It's like, hey, running is is for running is for all different ages, right? So you're you don't have to be a 20 year old or a 30 year old to get into the sport and stay into the sport. So we see a lot of runners that are a little bit older in their late, you know, mid to late 40s into the 50s that are doing heavy ultras here. So this is awesome that that you can share your story on this. So where did it all begin? Started. I did my first organized race of any kind when I did the Wasatch 100 in 1994. So I never run a 5k or a marathon or anything. That was the first I ever did. Back then, remember that there were basically four races of the Grand Slam. And I, well, the first five really kind of like the fourth and fifth ones, right? And then Old Dominion wasn't around for a while. Then it came back where I don't understand what's going on there. But my recollection is that in 1994, there might have been a couple of other hundreds in the country. Oh, yeah. There was no Squaw Peak 50. Um, there was the JFK 50. There were a few other 50 milers. But basically, in that day and age, you did the 100 miler, and then you were kind of done unless you wanted to get on a plane, go somewhere and do another 100 miler. Yeah. Um, and the Grand Slam, I think, was in place by then. 
but it was really in its infancy. I was on the summit of Mount Pinagos in 1996 or 1997, which is a local mountain there in, in the Wasatch Front. And I was on a training run and I was sitting on the summit and I was wearing my Wasatch 100 t-shirt. I was talking to some people about it because they were curious about it. It's like, oh, this is the Wasatch 100. I've heard of that. A lot of people know about that race in, in the area. And I said, yeah. And this was probably what, mid-July? So I said to myself, in my check and get registered for this year. Still hadn't registered for whatever reason. So I went ahead and sent my check in and registered. And then there were 90 of us that did it. Um, there was no, there was no maximum number because there was like 90 or hundred people that signed up and there was no, certainly no lottery. There wasn't a need, you know? Um, and I've seen everything completely change since that time. Then right, right around that time, John Bozum called me up and said, Hey, I'm thinking about putting on a 50 miler above Provo. I'm going to call it the Squaw Peak 50 and trying to figure out if there's a way we can go over Squaw Mountain, Squaw Peak. And I went up there and kicked around for a, a couple of runs and said, there's no way to connect it, John. You're not going to get over there. There's no way to make it happen um, because you can't get from this point. to there. And I helped him put that race together. And that's since it's become kind of a classic 50 miler. I think they're going to change the name now. Uh, to something, maybe the snow, snow peaks 50. So they still keep the SP, but I mean, there's everything, everything has completely transformed. I mean, there's so many hundreds now, and now the 200 distance is starting to become really popular. Yeah. And even in the two hundreds, I started doing two hundreds in 2017 and kind of after I did, it was the same year that I did my 20th Wasatch 100 and I've pretty much retired from that race, but, uh, I did Bigfoot in August of 2017. And then I morphed right over and did Wasatch 100, did my 20th Wasatch 100 that year and retired from Wasatch. Uh, and kind of fell in love with the 200 distance. And yeah. that's really what I've been focusing on for the last few years. So the And in the so meantime, like I said, I've, I've done 15 bear 100s. I've done 5,900 milers. I've done, my wife and I have done the Zion 100 every year. We we did it the first year. She did her first hundred miler in 2017 and we eloped the next day to Vegas. So it's been our anniversary <laughs> run. So we do that one every year. It's oh, our anniversary. What a great anniversary run. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We um, had an experience on that one. Yeah. I, I'm quite curious. I mean, you, you were kind of there at the infancy, uh, infancy of the one hundreds, like you said, mm -hmm. and where it just started. Like, so what's kind of been your take from what you've seen in 1994 to how races are run now, like <laughs> there's got to, like, again, it goes back to how much things change, you know, from a year to year, day to day type of thing and in, uh, in running, but to go through 30 years of seeing, you know, the Wasatch go through and, and seeing that, like, what's, what's been your biggest, like, like, Oh my God, I can't believe we're doing this now type of thing when it comes to the one hundreds. The core group of hundreds back in the early days was, basically a, a bunch of marathon misfits who were people who wanted to go beyond the marathon, but were, uh, they, you know, they were kind of geeky. Yeah. Uh, that the, there was a lot more, there was a lot of, of preparation. Like you had to carry a map and compass and for some of these runs. Okay. The old instructions for the Wasatch 100 actually gave map and compass bearings for a couple of places where they went through meadows or the trail disappeared and you had to take a bearing on a tree and then you'd get to the tree and then you'd find in the trees and there'd be a marker there. There was a lot of pride in that. There was a lot of what I would call trail craft. And there still is a lot of that, but there, there has definitely been a huge influx of folks from 
the marathon and the road running world that probably are not nearly as prepared for spending 30 to whatever to 24 to 36 or 48 hours in the back country yeah. without, you know, being, being able to rely on immediate extraction. Um, now there still is a core group that's like that. Don't get me wrong. Um, and there's a lot of runs out there that try to control for that by having what are called, you know, basically qualifications. You have to have at least done this or that or the other thing. Mm -hmm. Right. Or, or they call themselves a graduate run. Don't try to do this. If you've just, all you've ever done is a marathon, you know, that would have filtered me out back in 94. I'd done, I'd not done anything, right. but at the same time, I, I used to say, and I still say this, although it's not probably as prevalent now, there's types of people who ended up gravitating towards the hundred milers back in that to go farther. And I was a hiker who decided to go farther. I was not by any yeah. means a runner. And I still remember trying to join group runs for the forum running club that Hawk Harper put on out of the runner's corner and not being able to keep up, you know, it, I did my first marathon finally in 2010 on, you know, I think I did like a 311. <laughs> that's the fastest I'd ever done, which, you know, I didn't think much of it until Meltzer said, Oh, that's faster than I could go. I'm like, well, well, okay. But you, you've got a little more juice in the tank at mile 70 than a lot of us, Carl. Um, <laughs> Carl talked, Carl, he says about 21 words a year to me. And those were some of the words that he spoke to me in that particular year. <laughs> we are, we are, we have a lot of respect for each other. I love Carl to death and I love his wife, Cheryl too, but uh, Carl's a man of few words, uh, unless you press one of his buttons inadvertently, then you get a lot more, but um, it's been fun a lot to see a lot of these runners like Carl Meltzer and other people grow up. And, and I remember I ran my first Wasatch. He did it with me. He did his first Wasatch one of the years I did it. And I think he finished in like 31 hours and had no idea what the hell he was doing. And then all of a sudden he kind of figured it out and started winning it every year. And I didn't, you, you talk about age. That's another thing is, you know, age tends to favor ultra runners. I kind of hit my prime in my early mid forties yeah, and you know, I did a double sub 24 at Wasatch and bear three weeks apart. There's, I think been 11 people who've ever done that. Um, and that was the year after I did the bear in 23 and in 2302. And that year at Wasatch, I just slowed down at the beginning and I had a good pacer who gave me some tips and all of a sudden I was able to take like five hours off my time. And there were a lot of really good things like that, that happened for me. And I think part of it was maturing and part of it was fitness and part of it was experience. And a lot of things came together. And I even banged out a, my sub, my squat peak 50 PR like three years ago, but just by slowing down at the beginning and having a really good back half. But my wife laments the fact that she's been training for two hundreds slows her down now um, because she's not as fast in the hundreds. And it's true. You don't focus as much on running as you do just surviving. Uh, and it's more of a strat strategical than a tactical race. Um, but um, yeah, the, 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 that, to go back to your earlier point, I kind of went down some rabbit holes there, but they're all kind of relevant <laughs> to how the yeah. sport has morphed. Yep. You, you see a lot more. And I, I remember it really well. I remember a particular Wasatch 100 where I want to say it was 2013. It was, it was, it was 2013. It was a really hot year. It, it wasn't as collegial. Let me put it that way. Is that a word that I can use here? Probably. I think I can use the word <laughs> collegial. They just were more, you know, more about getting it done and wanting to collect the bling. Um, and a lot of us call that the marathon mentality. Okay. I'm going to say it the roadrunner mentality. And that started, that's when I started to really notice it. And some of the other people on the race committee 
were feeling it like, who are these people? Right. And, and people are complaining about stupid stuff at the finish line. And yeah, it was a, it was a challenging year because it was hot. And then we had a big thunderstorm hit the finish line and people were kind of miserable and whatever. But it was it was like and all of a sudden, where's the where's the food? Where's all the food for the finish? It's like, well, we had an aid station at the finish. That's what all Wasatch always did. Things like that are now happening where people expect that and they want to be catered and things like that. So they pay and they're willing to pay 25, 30 bucks more. Um, and so now you're starting to see a lot more concierge stuff. Like people want crew and pacers and they're even willing to bring in outside crew and pacers, which brings in a whole new story, right? Because, yeah. okay, do you have a special use permit to operate in BLM by providing that service? <laughs> and that's a problem, right? Have you talked to the race director? Issues like that. But the 200 still have that kind of old vibe where it's such a mind F to do a 200 that yeah. there really isn't a lot of time or space to be grumbling about whether or not there's a particular type of food at the finish line. Well, and the 200s are um, 200s are, are right. fairly new too, as far as the 200. So you're going to, you're getting that kind of that old feel back. I would assume that like the runners are just, Hey, we're just there for the experience we're, we want to finish this thing. They're not there for the, you know, for the concierge services, as we're calling it. I mean, it's, it's a little bit tough on that, but um, so I totally, yeah. I totally can kind of see Agreed. how that's, how that's kind of, shifting back to that old starting mentality of, of the, of the ultra world and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm kind of curious, like, so you, you, you do the maps for Candace and destination races. Like what's the, what's your process of, of doing that? I mean, is it helping create the course and doing them like digitally doing the maps? I, how, what's the, what's the, what's that process for you? It's exactly that. I mean, if there's any change that need to be made, I'm, I'm real, I've been doing maps and doing GIS and GPS work really since uh, you could uh, get commercially available GPS. I was one of the owners of the GPS 12 XL, which was the first commercial map that or commercial GPS that Garmin came out with back when selective availability was still on, which uh, degraded the signal that was finally removed by get this president Clinton. Um, so that gives you an idea of how far back I go with GPS. And when the, the original product uh, Topo came out by wildflower productions out of San Francisco, I bought that up and then it was acquired by national geo. And now you've got all these other cloud-based uh, versions, but the bottom line is, if there's anything that needs to happen with maps or with directions and things of that nature, I'm responsible for it. And one of the big things that I do a lot of is create the, is instruct people on how to get the maps off of their computer screen into their phone, like using Gaia or CalTopo's app for their phone, or also using their watches like Garmin or Koros. Um, it's amazing how many people will go out and buy a thousand dollar watch and will not learn how to <laughs> import the map onto the watch so they can actually find their way during the hundred or two. Yeah. I, I am going to admit I'm, I'm kind of one of those people. <laughs> well, and it's, it's what's interesting about it is that people say, well, I'll put it on my phone, but you know how hard it is to get your phone out and use a touch screen when it's uh, 28 degrees during Tahoe and it's snowing, Yeah, which happened this year. Um, they, they, the, the screens don't work. And then you're also trying to, to figure out the screen and all the other crap while you're trying to keep yourself from dying, basically. <laughs> and it's just like, and, and the, oh, it'll be okay. And this is a thing that's happened with respect to marking in the course is that because we do such a good job at Destination Trail anyway, of really having a very, very accurate 
uh, trace of the of the course on that's digitally available, but we mark a lot less. We've cut our marking by ninety percent. Used oh, to be, awesome. yeah. Well, and I was amazed when I did the first Bigfoot two hundred in twenty seventeen. The marking was amazing. Um, it was the best marking I'd ever seen. But they've backed off of that because literally, you had people that had these. We call them dragons. The little clips with the the flagging on it and you clip them on and clip them yep. off. And what you do is you take this big bandolier and you have this giant bandolier of flags and two people with a full bandolier weighing, you know, 20 pounds or so of flags to make sure the flagging was done right. And it just, it's become ridiculous. Plus it also creates more impact on the resource. The BLM and the forest service don't like it. If they don't get taken down right away. And then of course everybody gets incensed because they're out on their family hike or they're out hunting and this flagging doing here and they take it down and yep. it creates all kinds of tension, right. With other, other trail users. So we've really, push back on that and and in compensation we've really focused on making sure we have extremely accurate maps so what i do is i'll take the gps track that someone goes out and i know there's a rata in it there always are and i'll take a satellite image of the area and bigfoot all right good luck there's 300 foot trees everywhere but strava heat maps things and those heat maps are now becoming publicly available where other companies are grabbing them and they're able to have super accurate maps, not just relying on the USGS trace. That's yeah. a little bit of insight into what some of the work that I do to make sure the maps are super accurate. So, and also to make sure they're in a portable format like a GPX or a JSON. Okay. So that way you can move them around platforms. And this is all stuff that most people don't want to deal with, but I try to I try to concierge it a little bit for the folks that, you know, they paid 1300 bucks in a race. And so we make sure that they have a portable format that they can use so they yeah. have a successful result. We don't we don't see many people getting lost in that's the bottom line. So we're talking triple crown. So is this the first year you've completed the triple crown? Or are you done it in multiple years? This is the first year. It, this is my third triple crown. So oh, that's why third I thought triple, triple. Yeah, I got it. There you go. There you go. Um, so let's talk about that. So first first year doing a triple crown to this year doing a triple crown. What's different for, for you and your training and your strategy? of it like what's what has changed over over that course of those three three times it used to be you'd do a race a month so you do bigfoot in august then you do tahoe in september and then you do moab in october now tahoe's been moved because of all the fires uh tahoe is in june and then bigfoot is still where it was and moab is still where it was so you have six weeks between tahoe and bigfoot and then you have two months between tahoe and I'm sorry, Bigfoot and Moab. A lot more time to recover. Now, some people are filling that time by doing other hundreds and stuff in between. Um, mm -hmm. I was going to do the Bear 100 with my son for the second time, but he decided he didn't want to do it the morning of the race. He's like, I'm not, I'm not into this. So we ended up doing some running around and hiking in Logan as a family, which was really fun. But uh, it, it, there, it is easier when you have that much time to recover. So the yeah. first two iterations I did it, you know, boom, boom, boom. Uh, 200, then a month later on the 200. And I would always remember like two weeks after, there's no way that I'm going to make it. <laughs> and then those two weeks would, I'd be able to rest and recover and uh, I was able to pull it off. So the vibe is, 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 is not that much changed though. I mean, it's still very hard to be able to do that. And the second year was my wife and I did it at the same time. So, and the first year I did the 200, the, the, the triple, um, it was 2019 and then it didn't happen in 2020, which was just as well. We had COVID 
yeah. and all the other things. So 2020 was everybody just flushes that year. Right. But my wife got diagnosed with cancer that year with breast cancer. And so she had to have chemotherapy and a double mastectomy. Um, but she came out and paced me for the Moab that year. That was the only race that happened. And she came out and paced me and I had to be done no later than like seven o'clock that Monday night. I had to finish within 80, 85 hours or 84 hours because she had her last chemo appointment the next morning in Salt Lake and she was coming out to pace. So she paced me about 20 miles that year. And then we went for her last chemo. And then the following year, she finished the triple crown and she finished it the day of her anniversary of her last chemo therapy appointment. So (laughs) that was pretty cool that she was able to pull that off. And that, that second triple, which was 2021 was kind of interesting because the Tahoe was canceled because of freaking fires again. Yeah. Yep. And that was the year that was so bad at with the Caldor fire and it was a horrible mess. And there was just no way, even if the fire hadn't burned up part of the course, which it did, the smoke would have been unreal. It was 400 on the air quality index. Like, you know, I don't even know if they have a color for that except black. (laughs) And so Candace said, Hey, those of you who are doing the triple, if you do a race that is at least as long as the triple with that much elevation gain, I'll still count it. And so we ended up doing what we called the virtual Tahoe, where we went up and stayed in the Brighton Lodge up in Brighton, Utah at about 8,700 feet. And we did a bunch of cloverleaf loops all over big cottonwood, little cottonwood canyons. It actually ended up probably being harder than Tahoe in terms of the difficulty, just because the elevation and some of the terrain we traversed, but it was all trails we knew because that's what that's where we train and so it was a wonderful experience we did that one stride for stride together whereas bigfoot and moab we just started at the same time and kissed each other goodbye and said see you later i walk the races generally jill always takes off and she usually gets ahead of me in the first 30 miles and then i'll catch up with her and we'll run for a while together and then i'll take off on my you know my I don't know what you call it. My, my idiot walk, but I'm walking fast. (laughs) And uh, so that, that was, that was a great experience for us both to finish it that year. And then this year was kind of, let's just see what I can do and uh, walked most of it again. I tried running at Bigfoot and it was okay. Tried running at Moab and that was stupid. I should have stuck with my strategy. So I just can walk really fast and it's easy on the body. Are you, uh, I'm I'm always kind of curious to ask people when they get into this, because the strategy to me is, is everything when it comes to these longer races. And, and I always find it quite interesting from a, a, a sleep deprivation standpoint. Like, like how do you, how do you work with your sleep? Uh, schedule and and do you get into the deprivation side of things? Do you end up doing a little bit longer uh, sleep schedule during these events, or are you one of those? Hey, I'm just going to sleep, you know, take a 15 minute nap on the trail if I need to. Like, where's where's your strategy coming at on that? Yeah, that's a good question. So, I like to t- I like to characterize it for people this way: in the marathon, you're fighting your your muscles and your body. Okay, in the hundred, you're fighting your gut. In the two hundred, you're fighting your brain based on experience, you know, yeah, yeah. It, it, you, you will hit you. If you, if you leave just enough in a marathon on the table where you're about to shut down your muscles or we're about not to take anymore, you probably got as much a fastest time as you could. And if you push your gut down, I can tell you from experience that Wasatch 100 in 2010, I was 
I was sub 24. I went through the exact same strategy. It was a little warmer and my gut completely blew up at 20 in 2011 at mile 75 at Brighton. And I ended up sleeping at Brighton for four hours and had to drink orange juice and eggs, uh, eat eggs, uh, to try to get my stomach reset and finally ended up finishing like 31 hours after that huge break. So you're always pushing the edge of what your gut can take in terms of nutrition. And for the 200, you're always rolling the dice with how much sleep can you get away with? And we've had, uh, I can think of two instances I've been personally connected with where we've had people get so um, hallucinatory on the trail that they lost touch with reality and were endangered. Yeah. Um, and one, and one that almost happened that way was Jill. And when she attempted Tahoe for her second time in 2019, where we had the big th- uh, snowstorm, it's funny in 2019, it snowed in 2020, it burned, whatever. <laughs> um, but she actually had an experience between Brockway mile 150, 175 Brockway and Tahoe city, where she was, she couldn't tell whether she was out running the race or she was in clinic treating patients. She's a doctor. And every time that she would come from clinic treating patients to being back on the course in the snowstorm, she's like, I don't want to be here. I want to be back in the clinic. And she had the wherewithal to finally call me when she hit a hardball road and had signal and say, you know, she, how messed up she was. And I had finished the race and I was, I had gone out to crew her. I'd crewed her at Brockway. And this was our tradition is that she finishes the race. I finished the race 24 hours before she does. And then I'll go back up and crew her at twin sisters at Bigfoot or Brockway in Tahoe city for Tahoe. And so I'd crewed her at Brockway and she seemed like she was doing all right. But then I called her and when she called me, I said, you need to get in your bivy and go to sleep right now and just get right next to the trail and wait for the sweepers because she was out of time. And I, at that point I knew it was over and I ended up rescuing her. I, I figured out, you know, I'm a map guy, right? So I went to the map and I figured out where she was and I cross-referenced it and said, I've got a truck, I've got four wheel drive, but this looks like a hardball road. And I, and I, I got within half mile of her on a hardball road and then another 350 yards on a dirt road. And I walked to her, this is after I'd already run 200 miles, found her and got her out of there. And by the time I found her, she was doing fine because she'd slept like an hour in, yeah. in her bivvies. We had Von Fawn who could not get out of her alternate reality and finally got ended up we had people went up and checked on her and said, why are you in circles in one place for eight hours up here? And we had uh, Jill, uh, not Jill, Jean from New Zealand, who was in the lead for Bigfoot in 2017, who was told by the voices to throw her poles off the cliff. And what? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. She was told by the voices. If you throw your poles off the cliff, you'll be able to finish the race. So (laughs) don't mess with the brain, brother. Yeah. Oh my God. (laughs) Here's, here's what I, this is what I do. And I'm an experiment of one as Kevin Setnis used to say back in his old uh, ultra running article that I would do every month. I love Kevin to death. Um, We're all an experiment of one, but I do dirt naps. I sleep for seven or eight minutes when I am tired. So if I'm starting to stagger or weave, I lie down, I will get up because there's a part of my brain that's saying you're doing a race. You need to get up. And I generally won't sleep. Um, when I'm in a dirt nap for more than night time. Now this year I, I pulled into a dry valley at Moab. My son was crewing me. And, uh, you know, last year I did the triple, no crew, no pacers. And this year I pretty much did it. No crew, no pacers also, except, uh, Jill crewed me. She dropped out of Bigfoot at a hundred miles. So she came and crewed me towards the end and then paced me and the, for the very last 10 miles, which was nice. But so she was kind of doing for me what I normally do for her. And we, it just works out that way. Uh, I did sleep for an hour in the car at Moab in the back of the truck 
Uh, my son had set up a bed for me back there and I, I slept, but normally I won't do that. And the reason I did is I thought maybe this will push the demons back and I won't have so many dirt naps. It's still, I was still having the last, the last night I was still pulling over probably, you know, once or twice an hour. And it was really, it, it hurts your time, but you have to do it. Cause if you're staggering, you're just being, usually I can tell just by looking at my watch, uh, the look at my pace, all of a sudden mm-hmm. I've gone from like 18 minute miles to 25 minute miles. It's like, <laughs> I'm not climbing a hill here. What's going on? So I've done this enough to know, lie down. And I love Moab because it's got so many great places to sleep. You know, I always look for a pinyon or a, a juniper tree and they'll have that duff underneath and I'll check for scorpions and everything's cool. And down I go. And I actually look forward to it. I call them my camp spots. Some people will sleep in the aid stations. You, some people yeah. come up with sleep plans. And that's my favorite part. It's like, you got a sleep plan. That's great. <laughs> Good luck with that. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've heard that from a couple of people where they think hey, I've got a, I've, I've got a plan. I'm going to sleep during these, you know, these times. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's definitely going to be thrown out the window in the first, yeah. first, first day. <laughs> you're going to stare at the canvas, canvas roof of a tent for 90 minutes and you're yep. going to be frustrated. And if that's the case, get up and move. Yeah. And then wait for it to hit you when it, there's, I have, I've slept in sleep stations. Yeah, I have. Cause I've hit them and I've been tired, but that's the only reason. And it's convenient. But if I'm not tired, I get to a sleep station. I blow through. I just yeah. keep going. Well, I did. I, I slept on the side of the ro- the dirt road at, at Moab this year. And the photographers came by about 10 minutes after I woke up and I said, Oh, if you guys had only been here 10 minutes earlier, you could have taken a picture of me sleeping in the ditch. So it would have been a great shot. It was literally in the ditch off the side of a road, but I found a soft spot and there I was. Well, I mean, it's oh, like you said, you, you find, you, you know, those little areas that you look forward to, I guess. And you know, it's, it's cool. But uh, for anybody who's, because you've done, you know, a triple, triple now for anybody who's looking to do any one of the, you know, to do their first triple crown, what would you suggest is like the first, you know, like one or two things like, Hey, this is what you need to know going into these events. Is there anything on top of your head? That's just like, yes, you need that. You need this and this. Uh, Okay. So we think there's a lot of things, but let's just, let's just knock it down to what we call the army, three big rocks. So these are the three big rocks, foot care, know what you like for your feet. And if you don't know what you like, start asking people way before you do the race. So you can start testing things out in the field during your training runs. Yeah. Um, I'm a really big fan of run goo pre and pre gooing my feet and then putting on run goo about every 30 miles. I think it works really well. Other people are really big fans of pre taping. Um, I got my feet taped this year by uh, Brian, um, on one foot, the, the medical director. And then I, there was another, I did some more taping at Shea, which is mile hundred. So mile 70 and mile hundred, um, because of those blisters on the balls of my feet, I found taping worked really well. I had not really experimented with it except maybe in the early nineties when it was, it was, didn't work for me. And I, you know, I flushed it. I figured it didn't work. Well, I found out it can work and you know, you learn every year. So Figure out what works for your feet and start that plan. If you're doing a summer 200, start that really in, in the winter and start doing training runs with that setup and seeing how it feels. So the second big rock is figure out what how you're going to carry your stuff and how much you're going to carry. 
don't carry too much, but have room for your water for Moab, for example. Moab is brutal because after you leave a masa back aid station at mile 16, you don't have any drop bags until mile 70. And you have some 20, 25 mile stretches without really any nutrition or water. Yeah. And you're in the desert and it's 78, 80 degrees, which you would be amazed how hot that feels uh, when you have no tree cover whatsoever. So you need to have a way of carrying your weight and you need to train with that weight. And some people are, okay, I'll fit it all into my little Salomon five set. It's like, yeah, good luck with that. You're not going to succeed. And even if you use a Salomon 12 set, which I've done in the past, and I have a lot of respect for their products, are you really going to want to play Tetris with your pack? In other words, have a bigger bag than what you really need. So that way, when you're basically doing the garage sale at the side of the trail, because you try to find your filter bottle, you don't have to sit there for seven minutes and get everything perfectly placed. So you can actually close the seal of the bag. That's just yeah. dumb. Okay. Spent fine. If it weighs four ounces more because it's got a slightly bigger bag, then get the four ounces more and have a pa- a bag that's comfortable and train with it with fully loaded. And then the third is sleep to need. Um, Figure out what it's like to sleep on the ground. Do it a couple of times, you know, uh, or at least experiment with it. I like to tell people, drink to thirst, eat to hunger, sleep to need. You can have a plan if you want, but don't freak out and get all antsy if you have to rip it up, you know, because you're probably going to have to. You, you know, we say in the Army, no good plan survives first contact with the enemy. And that's true also of 200s. We had an unfortunate experience this year, for example, where there was some miscommunication as to which drop bags were going to be where yeah. at the at the Bigfoot 200. And so some drop bags didn't make it. And so, you know, you improvise, take some fishing line and a hatchet and two sharp sticks. And all of a sudden you're eating a fish, right? Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I had to do that. I, oh, I had a, a, a water bottle um, that was in one of my drop bags I planned to use and I couldn't. So I had an old Coke bottle. So I used that instead. A little harder to fill at the aid station, but it still worked. Sealed. Yeah. Fine. Whatever. You'd be amazed. At, I see people that, that are really good at improvising. They'll, they won't, they may be, oh, I didn't bring my raincoat or I don't have a heavy enough coat. And they'll take one of those ponchos or one of those bivy sacks that uh, Candace requires you to carry and they'll fashion it into a type of a coat and it look ridiculous, but they are comfy. Yeah. And so that, that shows that they're really learning from the 200 mile experience. So those are the three big rocks. Take care of your feet. Make sure you've got a plan to, to take what you need and not cut it short, but don't take too much. And the third thing is figure out what you're going to do sleep wise yeah. and try to anticipate that as best you can. Yeah. And be prepared to MacGyver some shit. Like you said. <laughs> yeah. And you know, one really good way to, to, to exactly one real good way to, to practice the sleep thing um, is just, you know, Oh, I can't go and replicate a hundred mile run or a 200 mile run and get that feeling of fatigue. Well, fine. Go on a 25 mile run, but start at nine at night. Yeah. You know, and you're probably going to get tired. And if you do practice sleeping, I mean, some of these, that's part of the problem though. Is so many of these things you can't, you just need to do it. Right. You you can you can do as many simulations as you want, but at a certain point, you just need to do it. So, what's one of your most memorable things that you've taken away from, whether good or bad? Like, and if, I guess if it's bad, like, what's been your learning experience from that? But uh, like I I love hearing everybody's answers to this because it it comes anywhere from the finish to the crew to you know just the the environment that you're in like is there something that stands out in your mind where you've and this is over the course of your 59 100s and your 11 200s like what's what's been the most memorable um 
I can give you the good one and I can give you the bad one. Um, Go for it. The good ones are when Jill finished the triple and I'll never forget that experience. I had crewed her at Porcupine, which was 16 miles, 17 miles from the finish. She was, she left strong. It was, a, the snow was flying in, um, but she was descending. She was going to descend into rain. And this is at Moab. And I just thought, I think she's got this. She's got plenty of time. And I remember watching her on the tracker and she just wasn't moving that fast. And so finally I drove up to the Grand Staff Trailhead where she had to pop out of the backcountry and cross onto the paved road along the Colorado River. And I just remember standing there in the rain, slight drizzle and looking at my watch and watching these lights coming down from the cliffs and not knowing which one was hers. Yeah. And all of a sudden this person shows up and it's not her. And I'm like, Oh my God, if she doesn't get here within the next six minutes or eight minutes or whatever, you know, I'm doing the math in my head, like hundred miles an hour. It's like, okay, so now she needs to make 19 minute miles. So now she needs to make 18 minute miles. So now she needs to make 17 minute miles. And we have this, this uh, locator now noise that we make that I started with my kids when they were young, just this, this really loud boop noise. And she knows that's me. And I know that's her. It's like I said, it's literally like a mating call or whatever. And I saw this light, the lights would disappear because they had to go in this Canyon and come out and I'm like freaking out right now. It's like, Oh, and 17 minute miles. And all of a sudden I see this light come down and I bopped and it bopped back. I'm like, Oh my God, this, she's actually has a chance of making it. And so she starts coming down and I said, um, she's about a hundred feet away. And Jill just, she just points and goes right. And she doesn't really think about the math. She just goes. And the first thing comes out of her mouth. She said, am I going to be okay? <laughs> and I said, you need to move your ass. <laughs> and I'm standing there, you know, I've just run 200 miles myself and my, I've got a bum uh, bum uh, shin, anterior tibialis tendonitis. I can't really run with her. And I'm like, just, you know, you got to move. And, and the whole time I'm kind of following her along in the, about a hundred feet behind her in the car as she's going along the bike path and I can't pace her or anything, but I'm just kind of going. And at a certain point I realized, okay, she's actually moving fast enough that she's going to make it. She, uh, and that's one of her frogs. I apologize for that. His name is Cletus. <laughs> <laughs> she has pet frogs and he's found his voice in the last few weeks. And so he, he shares anyway, he's one of her favorite fans. Um, but she actually made it. That was one of the, the most nail biting, exciting experiences I think I've ever had. And it was similar to when she finished her first 200, which was Tahoe, which was the year that I had to drop out, which was the hardest experience I had. I, I DNF'd at mile 63 with excruciating pain in my quad. I'd torn something and it just kind of, kind of snuck up on me and it was very, very hard. And I didn't realize how much um, it mattered to me until I figured out a plan for the next year while I was trying to crew her and nursing yeah. this injury. And then all of a sudden things got better. Um, but I remember when she finished, that was just a tremendous experience. And so those are the, and also when I, when I ran with my son and did the bear 100 with him, it's always been when folks have been, when I've been helping a member of my family get to that goal more yeah, than awesome. when I've reached it myself. I mean, yeah, I remember my first 200, I crossed the finish line and I think I muttered something like F hard rock or something like that after my first <laughs> 200, because, you know, hard rock's impossible to get into. Unlike the days when it started, when you could just go out there and show up, like that's that hard rock started like four years after Wasatch that I did Wasatch, but uh, I realized I'm never going to do that race. So I might as well do something harder. Right. 
Mm -hmm. Um, but it's always been more meaningful to me when I've been able to help chill, get across the finish line or one of my kids. So those are probably the best. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, that just, that just goes to show again, just another great example of how supportive this community of trail running is right. Like that's, yeah. You know, it, that's, that's what a lot of runners, you know, take away from It's like, Hey, I'm there to cheer on other people too, not just run my own race. And it's, it's really cool to see that again, see another great example of that. So, well, Phil, Hey, I, I really appreciate you jumping on sharing your story and, and talking about, uh, about all the, all the two hundreds and hundreds you've done. And it's just awesome to, again, meet new people in this, you know, that's why I started this podcast is a chance to talk to people that I never would have had a chance to ever meet in itself. So it was, it's really fun getting a chance to talk to you and I, I appreciate it. Yeah. I was going to ask you, you have the same, uh, same area code as Russ Reinbolt. Are you, do you know Russ? I no, not personally. Uh, I am here in San Diego though. Yes. Yeah. That's see, that's where my, and that's where my son started ultra running. He was a Naval officer down there. Okay. Um, and he's done a lot of trail running down there. Um, and, uh, I've done a little bit with him, but not very much, but Russ is, I, I know Russ is down there. He's an ER doc, but Russ and I've done a couple of the two hundreds together. And I know he's done some crazy stuff up in the Northwoods in the, in the winter, like in Alaska, some of those races that, or Minnesota, same difference stuff that I don't relate to very well, but everybody has their <laughs> own flavor. Right. But yeah. he's probably one that's worth talking to at some point. Hey, well, Thanks, it's great times. So I appreciate you. The Trail Life Podcast is hosted and produced by me, Jeff Stoner. Music was provided by The Poor Dirty Astronauts and lyrics written by Matt Meyer. You can rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast by going to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you stream your favorite podcast episodes. Thank you, everybody, and we'll see you out on the trails real soon.